Hello and welcome to another episode of Insight Out. My name is Billy Samoa Salibi and I'm your host. Through interviews and case studies, I examine how transformational insights have helped propel the lives and careers of exceptionally successful people. These major breakthrough moments teach valuable lessons that will help us both in business and in life. Today's guest is J.M. Miller, a highly successful executive leader and performance coach that's led and coached thousands of people in multiple industries. J.M. is passionate not just about being a leader, but being the kind of leader that truly cares about his people. Empathetic, vulnerable, and service-oriented, J.M. creates a connection with his team that's undeniable. On the show, we learn about the power of self-discovery, the critical importance of being in the moment, why he follows a specific piece of advice from Richard Branson, how love has become a central theme in his life, and what he uses to define success and failure. This show is full of insights like these and others, so let's get into the conversation with J.M. Miller on another episode of Inside Out. Extremely excited to have our guest today. J.M. Miller is a person that I had the opportunity to work with at Solar City and also at Tesla. And during that time, every time somebody mentioned him, it, it was followed by he's an incredible leader, he's an incredible mentor. I love him. He's amazing. And the reason why so many people feel this way is. He leads with his heart. He cares so deeply about the people that he's working with, specifically the people that are on his team, that they feel that. And that is the connection that he forms with his team. And so with that, I want to get into your story. But b- before we get into your story, JM, I'm just going to ask you this simple question. What's love got to do with it? What's love got to do with it? In a word, everything. It's as simple as that. For me, I've learned over what is now going on two decades worth of a career in working in the world with people that just about everything we do comes out of love or fear. It just really kind of can be boiled down to that simple of a, of a construct. And so most of the time when I think about the last 15 or so years, I was doing a lot of stumbling around in the dark on this concept, but Always, always somehow in the arena of love is important. Uh, the way we treat each other matters. Uh, the way I treat the people around me matters. And so, yeah, I think in a word, love has everything to do with it when it comes to work and career and ultimately working with other people. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And I think when we think about those relationships that we build with with the people that we work with, whether it be somebody on our team or somebody outside of our organization, they, they remember the feeling of what it's like to be around you more than maybe the conversation that you had or the specifics. And that emotional connection is, it's so critical to having those long lasting and really meaningful relationships with whomever we're spending a lot of time with, right? Because when we do go to work and spend probably more time with the people that we're working with than often our own family, that connection matters. And so you've had a a pretty 
interesting career. When I first met you, I, I, I didn't realize just how varied your background was. But as we got to know each other, I was pretty much floored by the amount of interesting and unique jobs that you've had in the past. And so I'd love for you to share your story with with the audience and kind of give your Reader's Digest version of, of, your, of your life. I know there's just been so much. So give us a walkthrough of uh, the JM story. Yeah. So life story in a nutshell. Um, I was born in Houston, Texas. That's where I actually I grew up in Texas. Born in Houston. Within a few years, my parents moved to the Dallas area so my dad could become a Dallas police officer oldest of six kids and was homeschooled until my junior year in high school. So I really, I bucket the first 16 years of my life sort of in this one place that for me, while I had my five younger siblings, I was the oldest. I, I was really lonely. I didn't have, I felt very isolated. And probably by the time I was around 10 or 11 years old, there started to be pretty good sized periods of time where I was at home with, you know, the majority of my siblings and sort of left in responsibility of, Hey, make sure everybody does their schoolwork and practices their piano and, and does what have you. So I did a terrible job of that. I was, I was horrible. I was a horrible teacher (laughs) at 11 and 12. And I usually just got everybody into trouble, uh, including myself, but I did read just a ton. I, I, I got a library card and I read, you know, some weeks I would read 10 books in a week. I think I did a book report just because on Machiavelli's The Prince at 12. Just random stuff. I was really, really curious. Wanted to learn. Wanted to know what the world was like outside of the bubble that I felt very viscerally that I was in. Played the piano a lot through that time. Just Sometimes it was just to kill time, right? I enjoyed it, but you know, sometimes it was just to pass the time, if I'm honest. Uh, but by the time I was in my mid-teens, I was competing all over the state of Texas in piano competitions and playing all of the classical composers. And so, you know, with some recognition and attention and the opportunity to meet some other people, obviously then I, I developed a fondness for that. So in a random turn of events, I ended up going to a private school for a couple of years and then went to college at A&M University. I was there for one year. I was in the Corps of Cadets. Sort of felt like that was what my family wanted me to do and learned the lesson at 18, 19 years old after one really miserable year at A&M studying computer science for no other reason than my dad thought it was important and participating in the Corps of Cadets just learned that doing stuff for other people is miserable. (laughs) And uh, at 19, moved back to the little town I grew up in, Rockwall, and that there started really a bunch of the craziness with jobs. And so just to sort of keep it quick, you know, I've sold just about everything you can sell, furniture, jewelry, cars, you know, solar, floor covering, houses. That's a weird story. I've sold a lot, a lot of things. I, I've worked, you know, for plumbers, digging ditches. I got certified as a firefighter, was a volunteer firefighter in Texas in my early 20s. Made a living for a short period of time playing the piano in hotel lobbies. Life has been really interesting and sort of staying present to kind of the moment and following my gut and my instincts, you know, one situation has led to another. And now at 36 years old, when I look back on really my life since 18, it's a whirlwind and it's, it's really interesting to sort of see where I am with the vantage point that I have now and all the stuff that's come in between. I just feel very fortunate and grateful, honestly, for the experiences that I've had and, and 
massive amount of interactions along the way that have taught me a ton. So not sure if that's what you're looking for, but yeah. it's kind of a, a short history. Well, we are a product of our experiences. And I think uh, clearly you, your, your varied background, it's no surprise that you've ended up you know, the person that you are today and you've had the chance to grow and develop and, and each opportunity has led, I'm sure, to new insights. And so the purpose of this show is to discover and discuss and really dissect insights. When we think about insights, often these are transformational moments in our lives where we almost have a eureka moment or sort of an aha moment that everything sort of clicks and almost in an instant, we have a, a understanding more so than we have in the past. And so a lot of the people that listen to this show are professionals, business leaders, business owners, entrepreneurs. And I think when we dissect what makes a business thrive, almost every single instance, it starts with leadership. And it starts with having the right people that can inspire that can guide, that can develop, and that can really maximize the efforts of their team and, and reach optimal performance. What insights have you had when you think about your own leadership that have helped you become the leader you are today? There's a lot. That's <laughs> such, honestly, that's such a broad subject for me. I think partially because I was really lucky to recognize early in life that if I'm not learning, then what's the point? that registered early for me. And I think really early on, I was seeking opportunities, especially in my career, to, to learn and to grow and to get feedback. And maybe one of the things that shaped that the most was really my experience in childhood playing the piano. And what I mean by that is, by the time I was 12 or 13 years old, I was competing at a level where I would go and play in front of judges. And then ultimately, I'd be on stage in front of a whole bunch of people playing these, these piano pieces. And my instructor at the time was a backup pianist for the Dallas Symphony Orchestra. And she taught me that one of the best things you can do is get critical, uh, constructive feedback. And so I would go to the judges that were going to be judging the adjacent circuit like in a different region before the competition and, and pay to play my piece. And they would critique it as though it was the competition. So I would actually get sort of prejudged and, and I would have these long pages of feedback, two, three, four pages, very small handwriting, lots of information on a 15 minute piece down to the level of, you know, at minute three, second 23, your right shoulder goes up for a second. It makes you look tense and it sort of takes away from the emotion of the piece at that point. And, and so just really early on, I learned the value of constructive criticism and the fact that its purpose is to help me and that I should appreciate it. And so one of the things I've seen over and over in my career especially with adults who kind of get on in their career, an aversion to feedback and an aversion to, to really sort of reflect on what's shared with them and, and dig really deep and figure out, is this something that I can change? Am I capable of changing this? Should I change it? And, and kind of wrestle with stuff. And so for whatever reason, that habit or that practice of seeking feedback and asking for constructive criticism, it's been with me since the beginning. I remember at 19 years old, I was working part-time in sales for a small floor covering store in uh, Rockwell, Texas. And one of my clients was a successful business owner in the region. And I had only been to one year of school and, and I was kind of 
deciding whether or not I was going to work instead of going back to college. And there's a lot of stuff going on in my head at the time. I was also 19. But one thing that, that I sort of saw was an opportunity. I built a relationship with this person. I was helping his wife choose carpet colors for the living room. And, and on the side, I was having a conversation with him about, well, what kind of business are you in? And, and how'd you get into that? And what led you to that? And I was just naturally asking questions because I was curious. And I followed that curiosity. And after five or so minute interaction, I just on instinct asked, hey, could I buy you coffee or lunch or something? And pick your brain a little bit more. Just ask you some questions. And to my surprise, he said yes. And so I bought him lunch and I asked him some questions and he shared some thoughts with me and just about leadership and what he had done in general. And that really was an aha moment at 19 years old. Like, okay, this thing that I was doing as a kid, you know, getting feedback for my piano playing, it's something that I can continue to do as an adult in the working world. I just have to ask for it in a different way. I have to sort of make those opportunities happen. And so I think it, at around 19, I, I had this sort of internal realization or shift where I just decided that to the best of my ability, I would look for opportunities to learn. I would look for people from whom I could learn and, and ask. And there were lots of people that I asked over the years that didn't have time or said no or didn't respond. But the ones that have said yes have been really transformational. You know, I've been mentored and, and taught and had conversations with folks that you know, those interactions never would have happened if I wasn't really paying attention and looking for those opportunities and asking, asking for help, basically. You really touched on something that I feel super passionate about myself. I think feedback is that lifeblood uh, of growth. And the more we are courageous enough to ask for feedback and really listen and not be afraid of what that feedback may be, the better we become. I guess kind of follow up uh, on on what you've shared. What would your advice be for a leader that maybe has been resistant to seeking feedback and or somebody that when they hear feedback, they don't, they don't take it in the right way? Do you have any suggestions or ways that you have felt has helped you with your feedback? Yeah, I think for that, I, I guess I go two directions at initial thought. One is if I'm a leader that has an aversion to feedback, let's say, I guess the first thing I would recommend is I want to look at why am I a leader in the first place? What am I trying to accomplish as a leader? And because if my heart's in the right place as a leader, and I understand that leadership is ultimately about creating an environment where everyone on my team and around me has the opportunity to achieve their fullest potential. If that's what I'm working with as my goal for being a leader, then then it's almost impossible to not recognize feedback or constructive uh, advice and criticism as part of the equation. And so I think maybe that's one thought. And then secondly, I think the toughest thing about getting feedback or constructive criticism is many times we're just too identified with what we perceive as our identity. And this has been something that I have felt for a long time. And only recently in the last, I don't know, six or 12 months have I started to put words to the feelings and really to, to understand with maybe more clarity what I was feeling. But I think it's important to, to look at ourselves in the mirror and, and be, be able to look at all of ourselves. And I think for, for, for so long, I would look in the mirror and I would just sort of see what I wanted everyone else to see. 
almost try to will that into existence. I would look in the mirror and I would see something that wasn't there. And it doesn't mean that everything that was actually in the mirror was bad because there's a lot of great qualities, but there were also some areas I really needed to work on. And so for me, when I find, a, when I come across, and I've worked with many leaders who, who struggle with constructive, I, I like to call it constructive advice sometimes. It just somehow the words land differently. But, it, but even so, they would struggle with c- constructive advice. And what it typically flags for me is, is someone who has not yet realized that I think there really is ultimately a greater purpose for all of us. And, uh, you know, there, there still may be just a, an over identification with sort of who they believe themselves to be or who they want people to think they are. And so it takes, sometimes it takes time. Sometimes it takes someone else being vulnerable first to realize that vulnerability is sort of the key that unlocks the gate of self-understanding you've got to be, I mean, you just don't go through that gate. You don't get to a level of self-awareness without vulnerability. Yeah, it's powerful. When I, when I think about people that have really mastered the art of not only asking for feedback, but accepting that feedback, internalizing it, and then taking action to really embrace it in a way that will make them better. It starts by creating a culture where people ask for feedback. And I think when I see companies that are successful, that's what they've done. They've, they've managed to infuse that as part of their DNA, where it becomes the norm, where everybody's continuously asking for feedback. Because I think generally people don't want feedback unless, or, or they don't, people are afraid to give feedback unless somebody asks for it. And, and therefore, if, if people are more likely to ask for it, then more feedback will be given. When you reflect on your career, and, and it doesn't need to be a job-oriented thing, but, but it can be, can you think of a, a failure or two that have really been pivot points in your life that have taken, maybe it was a traumatic event or, a, or, or, or an event at the time that was a bad thing, um, or maybe, like, like I said, maybe a failure, but how, how have you taken your failures or your traumatic events and turned them into, I guess, something that propelled you to become who you are? Yeah. Well, I, I can think of a lot more than two failures. Mm. <laughs> uh, it, I, I guess it depends on how you define failure. Just for me, I would say up until not long ago, I defined failure as, okay, I have this thing that I want to accomplish. I have these expectations for myself or for a position or for something I'm trying to achieve. And it doesn't happen. That was my definition of failure. In light of that definition, my entire life up until this point is just one big failure after another. <laughs> and so I think the first step for me was, was having a perspective shift around failure and the idea of what failure really is. And this may sound weird to say, but with my current understanding of failure, I don't actually really think I've had any failures up until this point. And I guess to explain that, what I mean is my current definition of failure is giving up. That's really the only way to fail in life is to stop attempting to grow, stop trying to achieve our potential. I think for me, it was probably about five years ago, I began to shift my perspective of what success was. And, and today I would define success for me personally as I have a few key areas in my life that I've defined that are sort of the areas where I want to really test the limits of my potential. And every single day is a win if I'm simply moving in that direction. And that's it. And I can do that until I die. And so success is something that I can live in 
right now until the rest of my life. It's not something I have to wait to achieve. And that shift in perspective has been massive in the way I lead myself in my own life. But to be more specific and to answer your question, not so esoterically, um, I'd say there have been plenty of times where I've thought something was going in a direction. So so one instance I was with, uh, I spent about three and a half years with Shaw Industries, a big carpet manufacturer. And I was responsible for you know, selling carpet to a bunch of accounts on the West Coast and learned a ton, had wonderful relationships. And then it was like 2007 or eight, I think, and the market was falling apart and there were layoffs kind of sweeping through the different divisions. And and I was one of the people on one of those lists. And I, and I viewed being let go as this massive failure. But what it did was it gave me an opportunity to reflect and it created some space in my life where I started to look at the time as deeply as I could at my life up until that point. In that time and space, I met my wife. In that time and space, I had some pretty major realizations about what was and wasn't important to me uh, in terms of work. And ultimately in that space, it was a trajectory uh, pivot point for me in my career when I think about sort of what, what's happened since then. I'd say another one was uh, while I was at Solar City, I had the opportunity to work with who was then our chief revenue officer pretty closely on a project, kind of launching a new division for the company. And it was exciting and I learned a ton and I had proximity to people that were always smarter than me. And I found that really stimulating. I just took a ton of notes and then went home and Googled acronyms at night to to sort of understand what everybody was talking about. It was a moment in time in my career. It was a nine to 10 month period of accelerated growth. I was really deploying Richard Branson's advice, which is sort of when you have an opportunity, you just say yes and, and do your best. And while I didn't necessarily feel qualified I was doing my best and was always doing my best to put people first. And and yet that particular division, the product we were trying to launch, there were sort of some issues right around the time we launched it. It, it seemed like it was going to be a great success. I think I still have the front page of the LA Times where there was an article about it. You know, Solar City launches this division. I was like, yeah, that's what we did. And then, you know, two months after having a couple, you know, exciting months of bookings and getting customers on board, we realized we had to pivot with the product. And ultimately, I took a break from Solar City at that time and, and went and worked at another organization. But it, it was a springboard in that, one, I realized pretty early in the process that I, I was worthy of the opportunity and I did have something to offer, uh, which was my unique perspective. And really, a whole bunch of us all did our best and it didn't work out. And that was a great lesson for me because though it took me a little bit of time to accept that it didn't work out. I, I realized that at the end of the day, it's the process that matters. It's mm. it's who we have to become to move in the direction of our goals. That's actually the juice that we take away. I mean, the, I think Jim Rohn, I, I'm terrible at quotes and I paraphrase mostly, so I'm going to butcher this, but he's one of the ones I've listened to a bit over the years. And, and he kind of has this thing he talks about where he says, basically, like when when life outside of you stops, so when your career runs, runs into a wall, <laughs> when you when you can't go anymore outside of yourself in the direction you thought you were supposed to go, it's typically a really good sign to get to work on yourself inside. So when you can't work outside, work inside. Mm. If you carry that, you don't ever have to stop working. There is no there is no stasis because, you know, just when I run into a a block outside of myself. It's just a signal to work on myself some more. 
and become a little bit more of the person that I need to be to go where it, wherever it is I'm supposed to go next. When I think of J.M. Miller, one of the things that I always really envision is just how seriously you take the work that you do on yourself, whether that be meditation or diet or growing as a leader. It could be anything. And and it's just such an admirable trait that you have such a, a zest for making the time to work on yourself because all too often people don't do that. And it's just a, such a great quality and such a great trait. I wonder, do you need to work at it? Does it come naturally to you? How do you get so good at working on yourself? <laughs> oh, man. Gosh, now I, now I don't know if you're going to want to hear what I have to say. <laughs> Mostly out of desperation. <laughs> when, I, when I think about it, it's, yeah, it's mostly out of des- desperation. One of the things for, for me when I think about my childhood, it wasn't as a storybook kind of a thing. There's a lot of, a lot of suffering, a lot of, a lot of pain. I just don't remember a lot of wonderful things. And it's not that, I mean, my parents tried. Gosh, they tried. Like everybody, everybody in my life that was around me, everybody tried hard. Um, we were just we were in a rough spot, you know, socioeconomically, it wasn't good. Lived in a bunch of different houses growing up. There wasn't a lot of stability. And so I think early on, I was curious and hopeful in childhood that there was something better. So that seed was planted really early, curious and hopeful. And I bought the lie that had to come from outside of me almost until I was 30 years old. When you talk about that, when you say what you just said, it's it's interesting to hear because it's probably around the time that we met that I did actually start getting serious, that I realized, oh, like this is why they have us put on our own oxygen mask first and then help, <laughs> and then help the other person because I was trying to help people and I use air quotes because I, I was trying to help people, but I didn't know what the heck I was doing myself. I always had a big heart and I was always full of just this desire to see people be happy and be connected and and have what they wanted. That was sort of the way in which I think I understood it in my 20s. And I was thrown into management and leadership really early. I was managing direct reports at 22, off and on throughout my early 20s, oftentimes people that were 20, 30 years my senior. And in some of those days, I think my success in leadership positions was attributed to the fact that I just knew that everybody was different. And I thought to myself, if I can just get to know this person on a personal level and understand who they are and what they're trying to accomplish and what this work means to them, then maybe somehow, some way I can help them, you know, kind of steer it in a direction that's going to be good for the company and help me accomplish my goals as a leader and also hopefully good for them. And that was really the way I thought about it early on. But I was so focused on everybody else's messy garage that I wasn't looking at my own. Mm. And so I would, I would have these days at work where I could put on a good show and, and people would look at me and, and go, gosh, you're so amazing. And how do you do what you do? And thank you. You helped me. And a lot of it was just because I read a ton. I listened to a lot and I was constantly learning and I could sort of categorize and pull that information at will. I was sort of like a librarian <laughs> and I could grab the info and regurgitate quotes or processes or ideas. And because I had such crazy and varied curiosities and interests, I was doing a lot of cross-pollination. So I could draw from different arenas, which I think was helpful to people. But I was a mess inside and my personal life was a mess. It was really not living a 
you know, I was carrying the same isolation and loneliness and brokenness that I felt in childhood, carried it right into adulthood. And so I think, you know, when I really think about a catalyst that has has brought me to where I am today, and, and it's interesting to hear you describe my approach as serious about my personal growth, I, I would say for me, the way it feels is more just like I have the understanding that if I don't grow, I'm not going to be able to help others the way I want to. So it's it really is just a like a visceral, I feel it in my bones, kind of cellular level understanding that if if I don't expand, you know, my ability to help others is going to be limited by my own system of beliefs and thoughts. And so I have to constantly work at breaking down and and really sort of discarding those beliefs, the kind of that structure that I built over the years, I have to kind of let that go so that I can get towards like, who is the real me and, and all of that. So I'd say the turning point was about five years ago. And incidentally, my daughter's about five years old. So I was right around the time that my daughter was born. I, I remember in the hospital room, I, the second my eyes, she opened her eyes right when she was born and we made eye contact and I knew right in that moment that I was going to be undone. I knew that everything that I thought prior to that point either didn't matter or was going to be found out to not matter. I was a mess of a human being internally, emotionally, in between my ears at that point. But I knew that something was going to change. And since then, over the last five years, I'd say since since Ava was born, I've been on a five-year journey kind of peel the onion of my own soul <laughs> and kind of removing layer after like, you know, why do I do the things that I do? And why can't I put down these habits that aren't serving me? And why can't I add in these other habits that I know would serve me? And, um, you know, why am I still dealing with, you know, addiction, it, just all kinds of stuff that was really painful and hard to go through. But the more I worked on that part of myself, the more I worked inside, almost with every minute that I spent in that work, and there's a lot of different ways that that work happened, but I knew with every minute that with an increasing sense of of surety, if that's a way to say it, that I was on the right path. That I was on the path to what actually mattered. And so for me now... I'd say the last six to nine months have been a period of exponential growth. And I've started to really assimilate a lot of things and make a lot of connections uh, as I've reflected really deeply on my life. I'm almost living now in a state of just kind of giddy gratitude. Mm -hmm. Just like for the longest time, I felt like I didn't deserve anything I had. And there's a quote from an economist from the 1800s, and I'm going to I can't remember his name right now, but what, what people generally think is that we want to be loved. But what we really want is to feel worthy of the love we receive. Mm-hmm. And the turning point for me has been beginning to feel worthy. And it's a beautiful thing. It, it makes everything else small in comparison. It's, it's interesting to be having this conversation, um, thinking about working on myself, because for a long time I thought, working on myself meant I was being selfish. And I sort of took that as a bad thing. You know, you're being selfish or you're putting yourself first. And then it was the realization of, oh, I, I can't give what I don't have. 
And I'm trying to basically give other people's learnings to everyone that I come in contact with when I actually need to go learn the, the damn lessons myself. I need to go in the cave and deal with myself so that from my place of authenticity, I can share with those who come across my path. And that's ultimately what life is about is us going on our own inner journey, finding who we are, what are, what are our own unique skills and talents and how can we use them to help the people around us. And when we do that from a place of, you know, vulnerable uh, authenticity, both feels amazing. It's like the best drug I've ever experienced (laughs) and it just beats everything else. And it seems to have the most impact. It seems to resonate the most. And it, there's moments when I go, gosh, why did it take me till, you know, 35, 36 years old to learn this? But pretty quickly, I'm able to go back to, you know, it doesn't matter how long it took because I'm here. And so, yeah, I've been able to integrate a lot in my, in my sort of self-work in the last six months, but it came from five years of feeling like I was scratching at the dirt with my fingernails. And so it was just going back and trying every day and feeling like I was beating my head against the wall and little by little, the, the people that I needed to help, you know, the, the therapists and the mentors and the counselors and the teachers, the podcasts, the books, the experiences, everything showed up when it needed to. And I don't know that it would have had I not been trying, had I not been so acutely aware to have the things that I wanted in the world and to be able to help people the way I wanted to, that I had to become a truer version of myself. I had to become myself instead of a facade. Pretty interesting to think about how it takes self-discovery to become self-aware. And it's that self-awareness that we need to understand what we as a unique human being need in our lives, whether that be um, the habits that we need to develop or the rituals or routines that we need to use to operate our, 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 our daily lives, or if it is more personal and how we interact with those that we care about. And so um, curious, you know, in that, in that self-discovery, self-awareness realm, you know, what you've learned about yourself, but then also what strategies, habits, rituals, what rituals have you developed as a result of knowing yourself like that, that have really been important for you? Yeah. Being a highly unstructured individual, uh, rituals, routines, strategies are something that I, I bucked the idea of needing it for a long time. And I wouldn't say that I'm still, I wouldn't say even now that I'm highly structured, but what I have learned is there's an opportunity to add ritual and habit and and practice around self-awareness and presence and mindfulness and, and being conscious of what's happening in the moment. There's an opportunity to add that in to things that are already happening in our life. And what I mean by that is I started to stumble on this three or four years ago. And you know, it was a time when I was leading a team of a thousand people. And that, that was crazy because I had lived in towns growing up that didn't have that many people. <laughs> and so, you know, here I was with a, I think a VP title at the time, which of course I didn't feel worthy of. And I was responsible for, for leading people who had director titles. And then, you know, I had a leadership team of close to a hundred. 
And every single day, the, the largest prevailing thought in my mind was how can I help the people on this team do their best and not just grow in their jobs or being good at their job, but how can I help them grow as people? Because I had this hunch that if, if we grow, and I, and I think the hunch came from knowing it about myself, you know, if I can grow as a person, I become a better employee. If I can grow in my understanding and awareness of, of who I am as a human being, I, I become a better collaborator uh, because then I, I, I touch into the place where I realize that, you know, love isn't the way we think about it in, on Valentine's day in this country. It's, it's love means respect for each other as human beings. Love means recognizing that we're all the same. Love means looking at every single individual that I come in contact with, regardless of their title or, you know, their, their current physical appearance and understanding that we are intrinsically the same. We're made up of the same parts, uh, in terms of like spirit, body, emotions, intellect, we all have the same core needs and desires, and we all deserve the same respect, love, and attention. And I was having moments of stumbling into that, I'd say about three or four years ago. And so I would, I would go into you know, meetings with the team or, or summits or, or things like that, always with the intention of, what does this group of people that I'm going to spend time with today, what do they need to grow? What perspective shift is necessary? What, what obstacle needs to be cleared ultimately for them to look at themselves? And, and when I think back over my career as a leader and a manager, probably one of the things that I've done the best is help people find a way to do what they need to do in their own way for themselves. And it just sort of it, to me, it made logical sense. You know, I'd have a, I'd have a salesperson who had a really analytical background and they were struggling with the, the science of, of human interaction and the way that a conversation goes and how to manage the ups and downs of emotion. And, and so I would spend time with that person and dig really deep and figure out somewhere in there, there's something that you, that you get emotional about. I help them find their own emotional center because then once they understood that, then they could connect that with other people. And you know, I just think about all of the individual conversations I've had over the years. And as I was helping sort of in my proverbial way of thinking about it, as I was helping everyone around me clean up their own garages, I was discovering things about my own garage. I was looking at theirs and going, oh yeah, I have that same mess. <laughs> oh yeah, I do that too. Oh yeah. And and then there would be these little moments of awakening where I would be like kind of open one eye and kind of look at myself a little bit. And early on it was too painful. Because I think I developed an addiction to alcohol starting at 19 years old. And that was really it was a thread that went through my entire life up until uh just a little under seven months ago. And there were times in periods of my career where I was able to manage it better. I'd say the last five or six years, I had a lot better control over it than maybe I did earlier in my career. I never lost jobs because of drinking and you know anything like that, but but I was using that as a substitute for self-awareness, for understanding, for for I was using that to fill the, I think Oprah talks about the hole in our soul. You know, I was using that to to try to fill that place. And it was certainly it helped me a great deal in making a mess of my personal life. 
uh, for, for much of my adult life. But as I was in the work days and I was working with people and I was trying to help them figure out their stuff, I would get these little glimpses into my own stuff. And so that's, that's why when, you know, when my daughter was born and I, and it really hit me like, oh, life just got real, like real, real. (laughs) Then I, I was, I had to look in the mirror and, and of course it was too painful, but right then, right when I was willing, it's just like every hero story we've ever heard. The second I was willing I had emotional thinking about this. The second I was willing to face the bully, so to speak, to face the dragon, and I got knocked down and I felt like, okay, here's the end. I'm going to die now. You know, right in that place where I thought all was lost. And that was the place where the the first seeds of self-discovery were. That was the place where I began to find the truth about myself, about just what really matters in general. And that's where the help started to come in. That's where it just, it just came from everywhere. And, you know, I think about the people that came into my life uh, over the last five years. This is, it's, it's, uh, I'm just so grateful for so many people who have, just shown up out of nowhere and um and been willing to take me by the hand and and help me peel layer after layer from my heart so that I could understand who I really who I really am and and why I do what I do um to to the point where now I can't imagine being more full. I can't imagine having more to give. And uh, and so every day is pretty charmed right now. I don't even know where we started with that question, but man, we ended up in an interesting spot. <laughs> well, thank you for, for sharing. And, and it, the world works in mysterious ways, right? You know, you, you talk about how the minute you sort of had that realization that was almost the instant is when that the floodgates opened up and all these people were there to pick you up and support you and help you. And that it's, it's almost like that was meant to be right. It happened. It happened. Not almost. It happened at the right time. Yeah. It, it just, it just was meant to be. So one of the things that you just talked about was, was mindfulness. And I know being present is something that's important to you. And I think it's something that a lot of people it's becoming, I, I feel like there's a, a movement towards this and I hear more and more people gravitating to this notion of not having one foot in the future and one foot in the past. It's really about being in the here and now and being present. And why don't you talk a little bit about how mindfulness has helped you and how it found you? Yeah, I, I love the way you asked that. How mindfulness found me because that's really the, that's really what happens. I think I think mindfulness for me it's a part of becoming self-aware, so to speak. You know, if you read Eckhart Tolle or uh, listen to Deepak Chopra, you know, these are some of the people that I've been listening to for the past three to five years. You know, Oprah Winfrey, others. They'll all say a similar thing that. You know, when you re- when when we realized, when I realized that I was not my thoughts or my feelings, that was a that was a watershed moment for me. I mean, that was a moment where just whole 
mountains of stuff that I was carrying around just fell away. Things I was worrying about in the future just disappeared. When I realized, wait, I'm not... Even my identity as I perceived it at the time wasn't really me. It was a it was a combination of experiences and thoughts and ideas and ego, but it wasn't it wasn't me. It wasn't my consciousness. It wasn't my awareness. And for me, mindfulness has really been about learning how to rest in being, learning how to rest in the awareness of who I really am. And that's been the pathway to just being in the moment. Because what I've come to realize is that the past is just as imaginary as the future. I mean, if you think think about it right now, like we're sitting here having this conversation, even 30 minutes ago in this conversation, the only way to access it is to go into our imagination, is to go into our mind and use our memory and think about what transpired. And because of the way our brains operate, there's no possible way for us to think about what transpired 30 minutes ago in exactly the way that it happened. It's already going to have changed a little bit in our imagination, in our memory. Thinking about the future is the same thing. Doesn't mean that it's going to happen. It's just a set of thoughts and feelings and emotions. And we can get so easily drawn into believing the, re- the, the reality, what we perceive as the reality of what will happen. And we, we talk about it in forms like, well, if I do this, then that will happen. I lived that way for a long time. Well, because this happened, then I have to do this. I lived that way for a long time too. But recognizing that those are the same, because something happened or because something might happen, they're actually the same. Because neither one of them technically exists. Only this moment exists. And I think the things that have helped me to, to, to get to this place are regular daily meditation. It wasn't until I understood that daily meditation, as painful as it is sometimes, because I feel like I'm doing it wrong and I get distracted <laughs> and I have a million thoughts and I'm constantly questioning myself going, is this even like, what does this even mean? But then over time, there's this buildup. And I find myself more and more being able to recognize moments for what they are and appreciate and experience moments in the moment and just stay with it. Deepak Chopra talks about, he says, experience is like the breath. It rises and falls in our awareness, in our consciousness, all experience. It it comes and goes. It's always moving experience because it's not, it's not us. We are not the experience. We are the experiencer. So experience is constantly happening, rises and falls. It could be perceptively painful. It could be joyful. It, you know, it could be you know, benign or in the middle. It, but experience is rising and falling, just like the breath. Think about it. We breathe in, we breathe out, rising and falling. Much like the breath, experience, if you hold on to it, will suffocate you. If you hold your breath, you suffocate Think about how many times, like I think about for myself, how many times did I hold on to an experience, even a good experience? Oh my gosh, that was so amazing. And then I thought about it all the time. And it began to affect everything in my life that happened in the moment after that, almost in a negative way because, oh, this wonderful thing happened and I can't have that anymore. And and now this moment I'm in could have been wonderful, but by comparison, 
I've denigrated my, my actual present experience. But I did all of that to myself. I was in control of it. Whereas if, just like the breath, if I just let it go, oh, it was great, fun. And then been on to the next. Whether it was painful or not, painful or great, I could be living an entirely different existence. And so it's this weird thing where mindfulness has allowed me to both slow down and increase my experience at the same time. I I don't run around out of breath like I used to. I can't remember the last time in the last six months that I've panicked about timing of something. You know, I'm going to be late. I'm going to be late. Because the, the mindfulness practice and really just meditation and understanding, having greater perspective of, of who I am and what, what I am has helped to reprioritize for me what matters. So thank thank you, Jam. I mean, it, it takes it takes some courage to share in the way that you're sharing with me right now, and I I got chills right now just saying that because you're sharing yourself and you're sharing yourself in a way that you're not censoring kind of the feelings, the emotions, the thoughts that have occurred in your life. It means something to be able to do that, and I think it's probably in some ways cathartic, but also doesn't necessarily mean that it's comfortable. You know, I think we we always want to put out the perfect persona when we look at our social media pages or when we look at outward facing, oftentimes facade that exists. And I think every single one of us has that facade. The facade is, is let's be honest, it's fake. It's not the real you. We all have a garage and we're in my garage right now. <laughs> but I know when you say that, what you mean is when it's all said and done, what's, what's our life look like when no one else is looking? What's our life look like when the shit hits the fan mm-hmm. and when life's ugly? You shared just briefly that you, you've recently, you've had an addiction to alcohol since you were 19 and you've recently over the last seven months gotten that addiction and, and kind of put it at least in a, in the, for the first time in a, in a place where it's not consuming your life. Um, and I know you, you've, um, you, you owe that at least in part and, and maybe in, in large part to, uh, AA, can you share, uh, if you feel comfortable a little bit about what that means to you and, and how that's helped you in, in your journey? Yeah, absolutely. I guess I'll rewind about a little over five years ago. My wife was pregnant with my daughter and I think she was about five months pregnant. Maybe it was four. And to this day, I don't know what came over me, but I left our house that we had just purchased up in Northern California. I went down to the local bar and, and I don't remember what happened after that. Um, like I showed up back home, I'm told at 3 a.m. and I was, a, I was a mess and it was bad and scared the living heck out of my wife because she didn't sort of realize that I was dealing with you know alcohol in this way. You know, I think in her mind, I was a social drinker and I just let her believe that. And, and really, I think that my personal relationships were where alcohol had affected me the most, you know, from 19 years old. So this was no, this was no new thing. I went to an AA meeting after a couple of days when the hangover was a two day hangover. 
I went to an AA meeting and I very quickly decided that I was not like those people. Like, you know, these people are a mess. You know, they're dealing with things like just stuff that I hadn't dealt with. And I went to one meeting and decided, well, I'm, I'm, uh, I still have a corporate job and I, I still have a marriage. That was the delusion because that was on thin ice. You know, I just, I hadn't lost enough, so to speak. But in a way, what I then resigned to was, okay, now I have to deal, I, I really do have to deal with this alone. So then my daughter's with born, my daughter's born and I have this realization that, oh, I've, I've got to work on myself. And I start doing, you know, EMDR trauma regression therapy to deal with stuff from childhood. I start you know, reading a ton and listening to speakers and going to conferences. And I begin to explore, you know, what are my actual interests? I start taking all kinds of classes, you know, acting, improv, uh, writing, you know, just, I begin to, to allow myself to do things for myself and to learn more and more. And then about two years ago, I went to this, uh, retreat. It was a 10 day thing and it was called the Hoffman process. And it was transformative. It, it it actually, the teachers in that particular program gave me access to the part of myself that was living in complete shame and, and allowed me to see that that was actually what was happening and, and to peel away really the layers of it that were sort of impeding me from having any access to my my soul, so to speak. And so all of this is going on but I'm still drinking just about every night. And it had become kind of a thing where my wife felt as though I was not drinking and I let her believe that. And so typically I would get my wife and daughter to go to sleep and then I drink like a half a bottle of vodka from 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. to pass out and go to sleep because otherwise I couldn't get my brain to stop going a thousand miles an hour. And so really when I reflect on it, the last five years were a period of, of really exponential for me, exponential growth for me professionally. And a lot of that was because I was working on myself and I was reflecting and I was aware and I was growing in courage and vulnerability and I was allowing pieces of the past to fall away. And so I was put into higher and higher leadership positions. But that part of me that felt as though I didn't deserve the respect or accolades or love that I received, it grew with every drink because I was living in that one small way. I was living a dual life. I was allowing people that I cared about to believe something about me that wasn't true. And it, and so while it was a lie of omission, it was a lie nonetheless. And, and it was just something that I conveniently left out of most of my work relationships as well. There were very few people that knew Actually, I can't even think of a person who truly knew the struggle that I was having internally. I didn't go willingly. It was December 31st of this past year. And things are going great on the work front. My wife had just organized a photo shoot for the family to basically say, like, I still do. I recommit to you because she believed that I had kind of dealt with this. And... I, I think I had just, I, I left one of my stashes in a place where she found it. And so she asked me to leave. And so I spent the, I spent uh, New Year's Eve in a hotel. My four and a half year old cried as I said goodbye. Cause we had plans for that night. We had plans for the next day and I was brokenhearted. And I woke up on the first on January 1st of this year, completely and utterly broken. I woke up 
and I can't describe the feeling other than I guess I'm not really afraid of dying anymore because this is worse. Like the fear of death left me on the first of this year because of the way that I felt inside. And and it's interesting. I, I knew there was an individual that I had worked with at a previous job. And as I lay there in the bed, I, I, I said out loud in my mind, if God, you know, kind of a God, if you're listening sort of a thing, I give up. I can't fight it anymore. Everything I've tried has failed. I don't know what to do. And then this person's face popped in my mind, like two seconds later, I happened to call them. I sort of felt like that was a good idea at that moment. And on the first of the year, this person answers the phone. They're a couple states away. We haven't worked together in a year. And I spill my guts about the situation. And he's like, oh yeah, I've been, I've been a member of, of Alcoholics Anonymous for uh, you know, over 20 years. I can walk you through it. And, and I, I was blown away. So I went to an AA meeting that night and I haven't had a drink since. I haven't had a drink. I haven't had a drug. And the first couple months were super rough. But I would say in the last five or six months, the I have been reinvigorated in a way I can't even describe to sort of integrate and actually really put into practice all the stuff that I was learning over the last five years because I was learning it intellectually, but I was struggling to practice things consistently. And so in the last four to five months, I've been able to put routines and habits and things in place that, you know, I could look at it and say, gosh, why didn't I do this before? But we just talked about it earlier. That's not going to help. It's not going to serve me now. Instead, what I often find almost on a daily basis, I'm just living in a ton of gratitude because I feel like I'm already on borrowed time. And for the first time in my life over the last six months, when someone says to me, I love you, and I know that they mean it, I can actually feel it and connect to it. And I can actually believe them uh, in a way that I didn't know was possible before. And I, I bet you can start to actually feel like you are worthy of that love. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Gratitude is a, is a powerful drug in and of itself. Yeah, it is. It's what, a, it's an oxytocin pump. And perspective is so fascinating. I mean, when you think about the problem that we have, whatever that problem may be, it may feel like the worst problem ever, but the minute you, you look and you see what problems exist outside of your own problem it does really put in perspective how many things that we we can and should be grateful for. Curious what your process is. You know, you're living a more grateful life where you where you do relish and and, and appreciate the things that are things that should be appreciated. Do you have a, a a way in which you remind yourself of those grateful components of your life? Yeah, there's a couple things. I think sort of the fun that I'm having now is is playing with these different concepts. Like, how can I be more grateful? You know, I, I feel pretty grateful. How can I do more of that? And, and how can I express more appreciation? And so I sort of like to think about things in, in, and maybe this is just my career, like leadership sort of training that I've done over the years. It's, you know, I think about things in terms of daily, weekly, monthly, maybe quarterly. And so for me daily, I, when I first wake up, 
I just go through a, a short list. I just will ask myself the question, what am I grateful for? Who am I grateful for? And I'll just take 30 seconds or so and allow whatever comes to mind to come to mind. People, places, things, my dog. I mean, you know, just all kinds of stuff. Just kind of flash, almost like a little movie in front of my eyes. I'll just center on that. I do the same thing before I go to bed, but it, at night it's more about what happened today. What, what, what happened today or who did I talk to today? What experiences did I have today that I'm grateful for? And then I'll go a step further and ask myself, why am I grateful? And that's just, it's an inner conversation. It's a couple minutes. I carry this little rock around that I found um, on one of the beaches that I frequent. And, um, you know, whenever I put my hand in my pocket to grab my keys or, or something, I'll, I'll bump into that, that little rock. And its purpose is just to remind me to be grateful. And so whenever I bump into that little rock, I'll just ask myself the same question. Wait, what am I grateful for right now? What, what just happened that I'm grateful for? And so those are just a few little things. And that amounts to six or seven minutes of my day, but it happens throughout. And it helps just to sort of tune me to the station of, or the signal of gratitude in a more consistent way. Yeah. It's nice to have that reminder. Yeah. And then there's, there's weekly and monthly and quarterly things that I've done. Like, you know, on a quarterly basis, I I started the practice of like writing recommendations for people on LinkedIn. I'll just think to myself, who are three people that I've worked with over the last 15 years that have had an impact on my life? And, you know, how can I express gratitude to them? Well, I could write them a recommendation um, that they can put on their profile. And so I'll just think of three people and spend half an hour and write a recommendation and send it to them unsolicited and just say, hey, I was thinking about you and wanted to share this. And I love that. I just did that exact same thing. It's yeah. such a good feeling. Yeah. And there's, there's other stuff too. Especially unsolicited, right? Just out of the blue. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, we're going to do our lightning round bef- before we do, you know, just to kind of really center ourselves on the purpose and intention of this show, which is discovering insights. Is there anything else that stands out to you when you reflect on your life as a leader, as a husband, as a father, as a human being that you would want to share with this audience that would help them in, in some way, shape or form that, that has been transformational for you? Obviously you've shared a lot. I just wonder if there's anything else from a, from an insight perspective, from a, from a transformational perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's one thing maybe that hasn't been said quite so explicitly in the way I'm thinking of it at the moment. Again, I, you know, anything I found early in my career, it was, if someone believes in God, then it was God. If you believe in the universe, then it was the universe. I mean, whatever, whatever it was, it wasn't me. And I know that for sure, but something I stumbled on early and thankfully stuck as a theme was that thing that matters the most beyond the metrics, beyond the focus of whatever the team is trying to accomplish beyond the sales target, beyond all of it. The thing that matters the most is how I treat the people that I come in contact with and how I influence them to treat each other and others. The way that I treat the people that I, that I work with in all directions, up, down, sideways, influences the way that my team treats each other up, down, and sideways in the same fashion. And that's what matters the most. Besides the basic necessities of, of food, water, and shelter, 
the only other core necessity that exists is the need for connection and love between people. It's just how we're wired. It's one of our four needs. And so realizing that connection and people and the way we treat each other and ultimately the way we love each other is what matters and that nothing else does has been a guiding tenant for me throughout my whole career. And it has been something that I've had to take heat for at times because I've been in meetings where I have a super analytical, you know, C-level person going, hey, your team of 500 people, you're managing a, a payroll of $4 million a month. And I asked you to do X, Y, Z with this particular metric. And I'm coming back with, I hear ya. And if you'll notice that metric did improve, but our core focus was on making sure that we did right by each other so we could ultimately do right by our customers so we could build a long-term sustainable business. Sometimes those are rough conversations. <laughs> and I've had people look at me a little cross-eyed like I'm nuts. But I will say, and this is probably something, if, I, if I'm going to be proud of anything in my career, it's that aside from some periods or moments in time where I would get really off track for maybe a couple weeks or a month or two and start chasing the, the glory, so to speak. I'm like, oh, there's a competition and this metric matters. And I'd start to go in a direction. Thankfully, I was either able to catch myself or someone around was able to catch me pretty quickly and point me back to the core of what matters. And that always resonated with something deep inside of me. And I just knew that it was right. I didn't know why for a long time. I feel like I know more of why now. But for a long time, I just knew it was right and I had to do it because it was right. I can tell you, I saw with my own eyes what kind of leader you are. And the thing that I think stands out more than anything else is that you're unwilling to compromise when it comes to what you just talked about. And that is the connection. That is the people. And you won't do it for any reason, right? And so... I know that there are, to your point, there's a lot of demands placed on a senior executive leader like yourself that has a huge sales team and, you know, a lot of pressure, a lot of stress. And the easy way is to, you know, whip them into action and literally drive that train to the point where the people are burnt out, frustrated, disgruntled, unhappy, just furious in, in some cases. And so when there's a new initiative or a new strategy or a change, I think the first question you're going to always ask is, how are we going to re relay this message to our team in a way that will ensure them that, that we're actually thinking about their best interest and that we're doing it in the right way? Um, and you know, it, it really has been i think a cornerstone of your of your ability to lead others in a in a healthy in a sustainable and in a loving and caring way so thank you for doing that and, and thank you for leading that kind of way that, that others can follow and, and learn from your example that means a lot man thank you before we go into the lightning round the the, the thing I'll, I'll mention just kind of quickly is happiness they've done studies uh, on happiness and you talked about that connection going to probably butcher <laughs> what the exact study was, but, but I, I was reading about this study and what they finally came down to is that happiness is connection. And so 
we can never take for granted the people in our lives, whether that be the people we work with or our families or anything, because it, it is the connections that we have with other human beings that is going to make us most happy. Mm-hmm. I guess I heard it said similar and then I've, I've slightly paraphrased, but you know, everybody wants to belong. And for so much of my life, I just wanted to belong. But the path to belonging is to be with our longing because it's when we go into the pain of what if it's when we actually face why do i long for connection why do i long to belong it's when we sit with that that the core of our inner truth opens up to us and we begin to start to see what has to fall away and what can be added in that will allow us to belong in the truest of ways and i've just been wildly fortunate to to live that pretty pretty recently but it's been it's been fun awesome well let's let's get into the lightning round this is a chance for you to answer questions pretty rapidly um they're uh fun questions about yourself and about the way you think about life in in some cases and also kind of uh some some interesting perspective on what you would do in a, in a particular situation so let's let's start with um what book what single book have you recommended more than any other book to others? Actually, that's pretty easy. There's a guy named Sam Parker, and he has a website called Inspire Your People. He has this little book. It's about a 20-minute read, and it's called Lead Simply. And just Lead Simply. And he focuses on three core tenets of, of leadership. And I, I find his humor and approach to the topic uh, refreshing. It's such an easy read. I've, I've recommended that book to well over a thousand people. So yeah, that that's uh, that's the one. Awesome. Okay. Who has been the most inspirational person in your life and why? I have to say my daughter. And it's interesting. I, I think if I thought about it longer, I might've said someone else, but I just, you asked the question and I just, and the reason I say that is I have learned more about myself, just being present with her and watching the way she reacts to the world from zero to now yeah. um, than I ever thought would have been possible. And just sort of being party to that. I, I sort of think, you know, being a parent, if you're present and and really conscious about what's happening, it's like having the front row seat to the greatest show in the universe. And so I think, yeah, I think she's been the most consistently over time for the last five years. And and I could make a list of a hundred people that I find inspiring that have had a huge impact on me, but, but I got to go with Ava. Love that. They are incredibly inspiring, those little ones. They really know how to put things in perspective. (laughs) Yeah, Um, they do. All right. So if you could spend one hour with anyone, living or dead, who would that be? Oh, you know the answer to this question. You've known me long enough. Oprah Winfrey. Like, just not, I don't even have to think about it. I'm assuming this is people that I don't already currently spend time with. Right. And I think I would probably, in my mind, I would give her a big hug and then I'd probably just sit and cry for an hour. Just to be in the presence of of someone who has been able to do what she's done and, and is still driven in the way that she's driven. I'm a huge fan. Yeah, she's she's pretty remarkable. 
Okay. Do you have any regrets in life? And if so, what are they? I regret not. Hmm. I don't actually, I don't really have any regrets because I don't, in my current understanding of the way all of this works, I don't know that I believe that I'd be sitting here right now having this conversation with you if anything was different. I don't think I would. And this is an awesome moment and uh, I wouldn't give it up. So yeah, no, I don't. Very cool. Okay. So what advice would you give a new leader fresh into their role that they maybe haven't led others before? What advice would you give them knowing what you know now? I would say... Be as transparent and honest with your team as you possibly can. Be willing to apologize and apologize quick if you screw up. Don't try to hide it and do the whole, I'm the boss, so I'm supposed to know what's happening. The truth is, none of us ever do. Most of the time. Even the CEO usually doesn't know what's happening most of the time. And and while there may be a prevailing vision that we're all moving in the direction of, in the moment to moment, it's we're all feeling it out. So be honest with your team, drop the hubris, be patient and uh, focus on getting to know the person in front of you, be in that moment with them and and don't skip over it. Trying to, trying to get to the next spreadsheet or the next email, because none of that is as important as the conversations that you have with the people in front of you. Great advice. Absolutely. Great advice. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. Um, Who's, who's your greatest mentor and, and why? Oh man, um, I'm really blessed to have an awesome sponsor for the last six months and I've spent a lot of time talking about life with him. So he's one, my grandmother in my childhood, Marjorie Qualtro. She was an, she was a mentor to me just in the way she lived her life. I've had the opportunity to, to work closely with, with a lot of really strong leaders. I worked for a guy who's sea level guy in the finance world. His name's Brian Ellis. Um, he was one of the, one of the folks who really invested time in, in conversation on, you know, how I could grow and stuff like that. And so I, I don't know, I, there's, for me, mentorship is a little fluid because the people I listen to on podcasts are my mentors. Um, and, uh, the, the folks I read in books are my mentors and, uh, and then there's the true person to person mentoring relationships that happen as well. So. Uh, those those are some, and there's more. Yeah, Brian Brian Ellis is a pretty amazing guy, and he's also a mentor of mine. So I can definitely understand why he's somebody that you would turn to and and, and listen to. Um, I hope he'll be on the podcast eventually as well. Yeah, I, uh, I, I know at least there is at least one thing specifically that I think he would provide a ton of value in, and that is the guy knows how to make a resume look freaking amazing his resume is just like otherworldly well have you seen mine yet I don't uh, i'm sure it's amazing too yeah i'm, <laughs> I'm sure, sure it's amazing uh, i'm kidding um okay what achievement are you most proud of my sobriety honestly yeah and the ability to be present because I, I think that's the key that unlocks everything that's huge so we've learned a lot about you during our time together, and I'm sure, obviously, this is only scratching the surface, but what might surprise us about you that we haven't heard yet? 
Well, I mentioned early on some of the jobs and things that I'd done, but you know, I, people are generally surprised when I tell them that I was a firefighter and I actually worked as a volunteer and, you know, went into some fires and like did the deal. And, you know, they sort of, they look at me as someone who's like, oh, you're an executive type person and you, you don't do that kind of stuff. I've played music in a million different styles. I've gotten to be on the road and went from classical music to jazz to writing my own stuff. And I, I still play music. It's still a big part of my life. So, and I could, I could vouch for you there. Yeah. yeah he's, <laughs> he's pretty uh, badass on the, on the keys. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, it still, still brings a lot of joy. I have a lot of fun doing that. So I think most people think I'm an extrovert and the more I learn about myself, I think I'm, if I'm not an introvert, I'm definitely an ambivert. I'm definitely, you know, I'm, I've learned that I really do love my, my solitude or my me time, you know, whether it's being on the water, I, I think really the only thing I do for physical exercise now is stand up paddling. And so I just get out on the water three, four times a week and paddle around. And that's my workout. I love that. I love walking just really anywhere where nature is. Yeah. I don't know what else. Well, last last question for me is anything else what 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 haven't we said anything anything else that you want to share um be, in closing no this has been fun i uh you know we've done some other projects together in the past and i wasn't um, i wasn't really sure what to expect but um i i've enjoyed it really enjoyed the conversation and hopefully we'll uh we'll get to do it again i can give you an update on where i'm at someday thanks JM, it's been an absolute pleasure. You're a, a true friend, uh, a legendary leader, somebody that um, I know has an incredible future ahead of you um, and uh, will continue to uh, live your days in the present. And I know that your family is in, just so incredibly important to you and Ava has an incredible father. And so thank you for your time today. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your vulnerability and your authenticity and, and for sharing so openly uh, in this forum. So I'm grateful and, and humbled to, to kind of have you in my life and uh, love you, buddy. Likewise. Love you too, man. Thank you for listening to this episode of Insight Out. I hope you enjoyed the show and I really hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in your career, in your business, or in your life. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. This is extremely helpful and I can't tell you how much I would appreciate it. Also, if you haven't checked out our website yet, you can find us on the interweb at insightoutshow.com. On the site, you'll find tons of great content, including all of our podcast episodes, videos, blog posts, and the all-important link to support this show through Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's an amazing platform that helps creators gain the support they need to continue creating. And remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out. Ah, 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 ah.